Hey everyone, Ingrid here. Um, jumping on before we start this episode because this one needs a little bit of an explanation, a little bit of background info. Um, so in the summer of 2021, I was just about to say 2011. <laughs> in the summer of 2021, I had the chance to work with an awesome Med SLP. His name is Kevin Renz Ambrosio. He's a Med SLP, works in acute care, and he's also a PhD student. At the time we were working on interviewing Dr. Maria Resendez. She is a professor at Texas State University. And when I tell you that I loved our conversation together, ugh. so it's been a long time coming, but we are ready to share that project with you today. And I can't tell you how happy I am that you get to know about the important work that Dr. Resendez is doing and you also get to hear from two of her students, uh, Jocelyn and Amaryllis, and they are just amazing in this interview. I have caught up with a couple of them. I, I met Dr. Resendez at ASHA this year, which kind of lit up the fire again to get this project complete. And then I also got to meet one of Jocelyn's friends and we chatted and connected on Instagram um, over there at ASHA at our Beam Happy Hours. So there's a lot of background story going on if you can't tell, but we are here now and you get to share the joy of listening to this amazing professional speak about how she approaches uh, not only teaching, but research as a bilingual and bicultural professional in our field. Enjoy. Welcome to the Bold SLP Podcast. We are so happy that you're here and can't wait to share with you all of the amazing conversations we've been having. We are the co-founders of the Bold SLP Collective, and we are also your hosts, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. Each of us has a variety of experiences in all things bilingual and bimodal speech-language pathology. You'll get to know us pretty well on here. We started this podcast to share our lived experiences, but also because we want to bring advocacy and cultural humility to the forefront of every speech therapy conversation. We hope that you'll join us each week, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Bold SLP podcast. On this episode, you hear audio from a project that I worked on with Kevin last year. He is my co-host for this one. I'm so excited to share the conversation we have with Dr. Resendez and two of her students. Dr. Maria Resendez is so impressive, you guys. She is a professor at Texas State University. Her research focuses on providing access to evidence-based speech services for populations who live in places with limited access, and that's both locally and internationally. She directs and participates in research that involves interprofessional educational collaborations, and she joins us for this conversation with two of her students, Jocelyn and Amarilis, and they're going to be sharing their insights on their experiences participating in this cross-cultural service learning program. Ingrid, I'm really excited about this one. I think it's going to be so fun. I think you're right. I can't wait. Then without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Resendez, I'm going to send it your way. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Maria Resendez, and I have worked on research to really reduce disparities in healthcare and provide access. 
And in spring of 2021, I taught a course for the first time called Bilingual Speech Sound Disorders. And two of my students who were in the course that participated in this research project with us are here today. There's Jocelyn Bailly and Amarilis Cosme, and I will let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Jocelyn Bailly. I'm an undergraduate senior at Texas State University majoring in communication disorders. I aspire to be a speech language pathologist in Children's Hospital. Hi, I am Amarilis Cosme, and I'm a school-based SOPA. I graduated of Texas State University, and I did the course with Dr. Maria Resendez. Awesome. It's nice to have you guys on the podcast. So let's dive into why we're here. Dr. Resendez, could you set the stage for us and tell us your thoughts about some of the current um, access barriers in our field, education, and even healthcare? Okay, so I'll start with speech language pathology. I think one of the barriers to access in that area comes from the fact that there are, first of all, not a lot of speech language pathologists, and there are even fewer speech language pathologists from CLD backgrounds who have the specialized training to be bilingual speech language pathologists. And so when we look at our population as a whole, the demographics of our profession don't really match that. We don't, our percentage, for example, of Latinos in Texas for school-age children is over 50%. And if you look at our percentage of speech language pathologists in Texas, we're nowhere near that percentage. We do have some programs that are close to graduating that percentage of students, but we're far from where we need to be as a profession. And so when we take that and look globally, in some countries, the profession of speech language pathology doesn't exist. There are no training programs. So there may not even be a university program that people can go to to get the training to be a speech language pathologist to work with clients who have different types of language disorders. And so I suppose one of the first things is education and educating speech language pathologists who come from these CLD backgrounds and who can who are trained to serve patients from CLD backgrounds. Dr. Resendez, I can't tell you how much that resonates with me, being Mexican-American and being a bilingual, Spanish bilingual SLP and actually going to school in Texas. Um, it feels so good to hear someone in academia say it, that our numbers don't match the reality that we live in. Now that I've been practicing in schools for almost 10 years, I see that. And, and I'm also hopeful to hear what you said, that our programs are graduating close to those numbers, that maybe the future is looking a little bit brighter and more diverse in our field. So I'm so, so happy to have you here. Um, but I wanted to ask you um, more about the program that you developed and what was the catalyst for all of this? So... I suppose it kind of all started with a talk that I gave in maybe 2012 or 2013. We had a program called MYSTIC at our university, and MYSTIC stood for Multicultural Intensive Speech Language Therapy Intervention Clinic. And we had some families from Mexico who came over to get assessments completed because there are, I think at the time, there were maybe three ASHA certified speech language pathologist in Mexico. And so we were contacted by somebody who had a clinic there 
they themselves were not a speech language pathologist, but they had training in special education that they had received in the US. So they knew about the profession and they knew about what sort of services the clients that they were working with needed. And so the families came over and we just really needed a way in order to continue the follow-up speech therapy with them. Cause we didn't want to just do an assessment, send them with the report and then not have any kind of follow-up because we make these recommendations. And so we want to know, are they going well? Are there changes that need to be made to the goals? And so we got involved in telepractice in that way. And so at the talk was a very dear friend of mine now, Julie Loney, who's a speech language pathologist. She was in the public school. She has since retired. And so she contacted me a few years later because she's also a, she was a volunteer for Austin Smiles and they wanted to do follow-up speech therapy. And she said, I know you've done the telepractice before. Would, do you think you could do the telepractice um, follow-up therapy for these children after they get a cleft palate operation? Because Austin Smiles is a local nonprofit that provides cleft palate operations free of charge to families, both in the Central Texas area and in Latin America. And so after a while of um, kind of talking with her, she's very persuasive, I decided, sure, this, would, this sounds like fun. This would be a great opportunity for our students. And so we started doing the speech therapy and it became clear pretty quickly that we couldn't provide the speech therapy essentially to all of the children who had the cleft palate surgeries. And so to create a more sustainable model, we started working with some of the local therapists in El Salvador because they already have a really nice setup. They have a government funded facility. We, we went to visit in 2019, in February of 2019. She and I were both, I suppose, fortunate enough to go on the medical mission trip that Austin Smiles did, not realizing that they would have to cancel them for a year and a half afterwards. And so when you get there, it's kind of like a mini university campus. Um, there's a center for children with speech and language disorders. There's a center for children who have more involved diagnoses. There's a center for all sorts of different um, subpopulations. And so there were therapists there that are working. They have backgrounds a lot of times in education or psychology and everything that they've learned is training that they have sought out on their own. And so when we were there, we were actually asked by their director, Dr. Ricardo Rapalo, if we could provide trainings to them. And he knew exactly what he wanted. He gave us five topics to cover. And so Julie and I kind of started this little, I suppose, project together. And we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So there's a, I guess there's the leaders project. It's more, it's a website, but it's more than a website. It's a it's a great collection of resources that Catherine Crowley has put together. And so we, again, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. These resources were already there. So we took those trainings and adapted them to deliver via telepractice with the therapists from El Salvador, from their, from ISTRI, which is the name of the center. And unbeknownst to us, COVID came. And luckily, since we were doing it via telepractice, we were able to continue the trainings with the therapists. And the whole idea was to really empower the local therapists because again they have these strong backgrounds in working with children who have normal development 
they're just all of the training that they've gotten after that is everything that they have sought out on their own. And so it's not always the same training that each of them get. And then once they go to apply the trainings or the information they've learned from the trainings in the clinic, it's not like here where you have a supervisor who says, oh, you're doing a great job of implementing that therapy technique. Or if you have a question, you can go to them and you can say, okay, this isn't really working with that child. What should I do? And so we went and that's kind of how we ended up, I suppose, developing and modifying these trainings to deliver to the, to the therapists in El Salvador. And I'm a big believer in involving students in the research that I do because I, I want students to, well, I would really like it if students liked and enjoyed research. Um, at the very least, I want them to appreciate research because I'm a big believer that research informs clinical practice and clinical practice informs research. And so I was made aware of a service learning excellence program that we have at Texas State University, which has us find a community partner and work with that community partner. And so Austin Smiles is our community partner. We were already working with them when I found out about the Service Learning Excellence Program. And then Eastry is another one of our partners. And so since I was teaching a Service Learning Excellence class, I could involve the students in what I was doing with our community partner. And so that's how Jocelyn and Amarilis got involved in this research. They were taking the Service Learning Excellence class that I was teaching, the Bilingual Speech Sound Disorders. And so the trainings had already been developed and adapted by the time they were in the class. And as part of the class, we did almost like semi-synchronous trainings because they were recorded, but we were delivering them in real time to the therapist in, in El Salvador. And so they got to be there and they got to take part in the trainings and also kind of help to field any questions that the therapist had as they were participating in the trainings. Dr. Zendes, I'm curious, did, were there any barriers or challenges in terms of using that telepractice model, I guess, from an international, like across the borders? Is there, are there any issues that you have to be aware of? I think one of the big things, and actually one of my collaborators, Dr. Gonzalez, was really good about keeping us kind of focused in, in line in that area, because since there is not a field of speech language pathology, it's not like there are rules and regulations for speech language pathology services necessarily. However, in El Salvador, they do have HIPAA and they do have confidentiality. So we did have to keep all of those in mind. And so in order to do this as a research project, we did have to go before our IRB, our internal review board, in order to get permission for that. And so we had a lot of, I think, checks and balances along the way. And so I'm a big believer in it all is in your perspective that you kind of take on the issue there. So you could see them as barriers that there were all these rules that we had to navigate around, but these are also rules that are in place to protect the clients. So we did have to ensure that we were, that we were still HIPAA compliant. We did have to ensure that we were still providing everybody with confidentiality and one of the things that I was really appreciative to our ITAC team was, is that they really sat down with me and helped to problem solve. So we looked at different platforms that we could use and they were really good about being, I feel like very realistic about what would help us to provide the best access to the clients initially and then to the, to the therapists. So 
I feel like we were very, we definitely operated, I think, on the conservative end, making sure that we didn't have any sort of like potentials for HIPAA violations or potentials for confidentiality breaches. So those, I think they could be seen as barriers, but they're also there to protect the the clients is what I've come to appreciate. And I think one of the things that Dr. Gonzalez told me that really kind of resonated was why wouldn't these clients and their families be entitled to the same protections as the families in the U.S. when it comes to HIPAA protection and confidentiality? And she was absolutely right. And that's one of the things that has really stuck with me as I continue doing international work. I think one of the benefits that we had was that we were actually able to travel to El Salvador and make that personal connection with the therapist. I don't know that our relationship would be as strong if we hadn't gone and been able to do that initial face-to-face meeting. And so in that way, I think timing was really on our side. I know that when, I suppose one of our challenges was when COVID hit, a lot of the therapists, much like here, had to start doing telepractice therapy and they weren't all going into the clinic. So it wasn't like we could schedule trainings initially. And so we had to wait a little while to start some of those trainings. But the lead therapist, Olympia, was great. She would go and she would ask the director and say, can we do the trainings on this date? And he would come back and say, what is the specific topic they're going to cover? Which is understandable um, because this is their work time, right? We don't we want to be providing quality information. We don't want to just be taking up their time. And then she would go back with the topics that we were going to discuss. And so we got on, I suppose, like their regular calendar of trainings. And one of the sometimes issues with accessibility is certain barriers such as race or ethnic differences and different uh, types of stigmas involved. Did you guys experience any of that? And if so, how did you maneuver through it? One of the... I think one of the advantages we had was having the bilingual clinicians because that reduces the language barrier. There are still dialectical differences between the Salvadoran Spanish and the dialect of Spanish that a lot of people here speak. I don't know that I could say that we overcame all of those barriers because when we work directly with the clients, they always since it's telepractice and they're not coming into the clinic, they always had the option to just kind of like not turn on their phone or not turn on their computer. And so I'm, I'm sure we probably did lose some clients that way because it's the whole, I think it's oftentimes viewed as like Americans coming in to try and do something. And so I don't know that we were able to overcome all of those barriers. I think the way that we tried to address that was by doing the actual trainings with the therapist so that they could be they could provide the therapy in their in their home country so the Salvadoran therapist could provide therapy to the Salvadoran children. It's hard to tell and again there's a lot of I think one of the things that I tried to emphasize to the students is I wanted us to be real careful because the families are always very appreciative. And so I would always make sure that we would also tell the families that we were very appreciative of them because they were providing us with this unique training opportunity that our students wouldn't otherwise have. So it wasn't just us coming in and doing this great thing and providing therapy, but really our students were benefiting from this. They were learning. And so we would always make sure to tell them that el placer es de nosotras, right? 
I mean, I guess like the best translation would be like, it's our pleasure, right? Was like a benefit for us too. Like we were learning. And I think a lot of the experiences that students had doing the direct therapy and doing the trainings, I, I don't want to say that we overcame all of the barriers, but we, I think part of, we were trying to do that by doing the, the trainings. And before we get any further, can you talk a little bit about the specific training and uh, maybe what that looked like on a day-to-day? -day? Um, and then also, uh, Jocelyn and Amadeus, I'd like for you guys to maybe share your experiences with the implementation of that. So, like I said, it was we adapted the trainings that are on the Leaders Project. So, they had some trainings on anatomy. So, we did the trainings on anatomy. It was really interesting, I think, to me, because we need to kind of get this foundation before we go into the therapy. And so as we were doing the anatomy, I mean, it's kind of like with the undergraduate and graduate students, it's like, okay, we're learning the anatomy. When are we going to learn to do the actual therapy? And I don't know really like the best way to describe this, but I mean, you could tell that when we got to the training on treatment, that was where their real buy-in was. That was when they were saying, thank you. This was really helpful. That's when there were more questions and, um, and I think more discussion and more follow-up emails. Um, and so of course that first part is, is important to, to do. It lays the foundation. I think that because the goal is to like have this be a training that we can use in, in other Latin American countries. And so I think that the next time that we do this, I would probably try to kind of plant that seed earlier. Like this is where this all goes, trying to give the big picture. And this is why we why we need this, because um, I could kind of sense like, OK, like hypernasality, because again, like you have to keep in mind that these therapists are already working with children. Right. So like we already know what hypernasality is. We already see it. Like, so what do we do? And so I almost feel like I don't know if it's the order or maybe like incorporating some of the treatment earlier, having some of the anatomy. And I think also having maybe some more because I, I think the videos were very engaging um the leaders project has some great videos and then we also found a couple of additional videos and so i there are de there's definitely room for improvement on the on the trainings that we did i also wanted to share and uh what dr resenda said how i noticed that the therapist like when they mentioned about the cleft palate and feeding part that's when they started like engaging and like asking questions and all of that and I know that during the trainings, I did have a little bit of a language barrier because I'm not fluent in Spanish. And of course, all of the trainings were in Spanish. But Dr. Sanders gave some, some of us students English PowerPoints, like a version, a different version so that we could follow along. And I thought it was really helpful, like during the therapy sessions, like um, for trainings, she would often after the end of each training, she would ask us students like, oh, did y'all have any questions? And then she would reflect also about the questions that the ther therapist had as well. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, she would also like, uh, Dr. Resendez would also like before the training, she would also like explain to us like, this is what we're gonna do with them. And like, she would like also explain to us why they were like doing like the anatomy part first. And um, for me, it was really helpful because, like, it, it helped me 
made the connections of what we were doing in our classes. Like, okay, this is why we do this. And then this is why we give the other part because they go together. It sounds like an awesome way to learn, Jocelyn and Amarilis. <laughs> and it gets me thinking back to what Dr. Resendez was saying, that it's as much our pleasure um, doing this project as it was, you know, giving the opportunity to those therapists and clients. Um, so it got me thinking about how this experience might have kind of impacted how you view speech therapy now, if at all. Did it change at all how you see our field, how you practice? I definitely, yes. So there were certain times, I don't know if Dr. Rosendez remembers, but there were certain times that they would ask questions and like their dialect. So I would like always try to figure out what they were trying to say. So like it definitely like made me more aware of different dialects. And like, I have, I just started as an SOPA in the schools and I have like a lot of, I have like all my caseload is Spanish speaking kiddos. So I like, I'm more aware of it. And I think about it, like sometimes let's say like one, one that I do a lot, it's like when there's like a goat, like the animals. So like there's people who call it chivo. I am from Puerto Rico, so I call it cabra. So like in the therapy sections, I will be like, okay, is this chivo or cabra? So like I, I always ask first. And then I continue to use their dialect. And I believe, like, by participating from this training, it made me, like, more aware of it. That's awesome. That's what I wonder, just listening to how rich it sounds your experience was through this class. I wonder, Dr. Resendez, did anything change for you? Oh, I always tell my students, and I don't know that they always believe me, but I feel like I learn as much from them as they do for me, because they bring in this, I don't know, like this young, fresh perspective on what we're doing. And I know with these trainings, I mean, we had worked on these for probably a couple of semesters with some other graduate students. And even with all of that, because like Jocelyn said, like I would always kind of debrief with them at the end. And one of the things that I would always ask for too is recommendations for like how we could make it better or how we could make it more engaging. It's also kind of like seeing it in practice versus like spending all this time preparing for it. Once you see it in practice, you're like, oh, like we should have had more of this or we should have had more of that. Um, maybe we should have done this differently. Maybe we should have had more, especially I think because it was being done via telepractice versus being done as an in-person presentation. I think that there was so much room for improvement and they would just give some great suggestions. And so I don't, I don't think I ever really told the students this, but the therapist would always ask for a copy essentially of the training because, I mean, I think we all know, like you don't see something once and then you just learn it. You have to see things and read things and process the information. And so we would act, we actually took a lot of the feedback that we got from the students um, and added more animations and made the slides kind of more engaging before we actually sent them. So for me, it really made me think about how I present the, not just presenting the information to the therapist, but also presenting the information to my students and then thinking about 
how we teach them to present information to their clients and to the families of the clients. It's wonderful what you guys are doing. I love all the things that you guys are saying. I'm picking up on some of the keywords that I feel are, are pretty profound. I mean, you guys, I think it's excellent that, you know, through this experience, you guys were able to self-reflect, which I feel, you know, as a student and you know, I'm still a student today. And I find that that's something that is difficult and oftentimes very scary for, for everyone. I mean, being in the field and practicing in acute care, I constantly find myself trying to um, make sure I'm being patient-centered. But I feel like if you're not you know, reflecting on yourself and your biases, how can you do that, right? Um, and so I just want to say, wow, hats off to you guys. I feel like those are some lifelong skills, whether it be professional or or, or even, you know, out in the real world, tools that you guys can use. That's funny, Kevin. That's the word that resonated with me. Because I feel like that's what, as yeah. we grow, go on in our field and our practice, if we don't self-reflect, then we're like perpetually like living our CF year over and over and over and over again. I feel like yes, every yes. year we have to self-reflect and learn and grow. So I, I picked up on that. And then also about the invaluable amount of experience you're providing your students because yeah. just yeah. having that knowledge like Amarilis was saying like oh I need to be aware of these dialects even if I'm comfortable in my community you know and I'm comfortable in Spanish and Latinidad and everything there's still so much variety and and diversity within our own dialects and a lot of people just never have that access to that information in grad programs. Well, and that self-reflection piece is really one of the key components to the service learning excellence course. And I think that's one of the things that drew me to service learning excellence, because it's true. Like I do, I always want to be self-reflecting and I always want my students to be self-reflecting. And it seems so simple, but that was like one of the requirements of the service learning excellence course is that you have this pre-reflection paper and then you have this post-reflection paper and they're not super long. They're about a page, a page and a half long, but it's just, I think there's something about sitting down and writing it that, um, that also helps with that self-reflection part. Because when I was a master's student, I distinctly remember I was doing data collection for my master's thesis and my advisor, who is now one of my good friend collaborators, Dr. Fenya, she and I don't know, she probably doesn't remember, but I remember thinking this is like one of the smartest things or wisest things I ever heard. Cause she said, even if you've been doing this for 20 years, you're going to watch a video of yourself and you should be thinking like, oh, I could have done this differently or, oh, I could have done that differently. You never really get to a point where you're like, oh, nailed that sex session. I'm, that's it. You know, like I've got this. Yeah. When do we ever really peak as SLPs? Do we ever? Is it just like this elusive? always getting better, always climbing. I think you have to always kind of, I don't know that you ever peak because you're always working with different clients. You have your clients, they meet their goals. And I mean, that's the idea, right? And then they get dismissed from therapy. And so you always have some kind of new challenge, which is one of the things I think that draws me to the profession. 
Yeah, and maybe if you feel like you've peaked, it's time to self-reflect and really look a little bit more, right? <laughs> I, I feel like that's just something that I feel like needs to be a thing for everyone to do, on whether it be daily, just checking in, checking in on, you know, yourself and, you know, and what you're doing, what you're reflecting, right? I feel like a lot of times we can reflect onto our patients and that's so easy to do with all these different workplace constraints and productivity standards and, and everything else going on in our lives. So I think what a neat experience to that you guys went through to gain those you know, invaluable skills. So awesome. Well, you know, you talk about the self-reflection and to bring in the CLD part too. If you're not doing that self-reflection, then I don't think you're ever going to recognize the biases that you do have. And so you're never going to be able to work on either putting them aside or work on changing the way you view them. And so that, again, like it seems so simple, but it's not something that I think that we always spend a lot of time doing that. I don't think it necessarily gets the attention. That's one part of this that I didn't go, I didn't create the project intending to have um, these self-reflection pieces. And I think I was pleasantly surprised that we had them. And we did look at the self-reflection papers from the beginning of the semester and then the end of the semester. And you could see kind of, I suppose, like development changes in students and how they kind of perceived cultural competence, cultural humility, and their experiences. And what they all gained from it was a little bit different, which I found really interesting, right? Because they're all sitting in the same class, but they all bring in their own unique experiences. And so it's also partly about being ready for whatever that change is that's going to happen as a result of your self-reflection. I think we need to all kind of like listen to that portion over and over again as a collective field. <laughs> so Dr. Zenis, what do you think, especially, you know, you're in a unique position where you're leading students of the next generation of SLPs. Where do you see this program going? And, you know, what do you hope that, like, do you hope that this program transforms into some something bigger? Well, I, I always feel like I have to be really careful in what I think is going to happen because nothing ever goes kind of quite as I think it will. Uh, I know that our next step for this program is to continue doing some of the trainings that on the specific topics that Dr. Zrapalo had asked us to do. And then we also want to incorporate a supervision piece to it. But that's going to be really, it's going to have to look really different than our traditional supervision model. Because again, these therapists have been doing this for years and the experience that they bring is very different than that of students. And so we're still kind of in the, I suppose, thinking, planning, programming stage of that. And so I'd like to see this be a very kind of comprehensive program. I'd like it to be something where we develop these professional networks so that when we have questions, we can go to the Salvadoran therapist. And then when the Salvadoran therapists have questions, they can come to us. It's kind of how I view my students too, right? They're future collaborators. 
And so as far as like where it goes, I want it to be a comprehensive program. I want it to be something that we can adapt depending on the needs of different people in different countries, because El Salvador has a very different setup than say, for example, Guatemala, where Austin Smiles also goes. In Guatemala, they have a speech therapy association that was started by an ASHA certified SLP. She went there, met a few, I think there were like four or five ASHA certified SLPs. And so they have a very different setup there. And so this training is not going to be something that can be done in every single country in the same way, but I want it to be something that we can adapt based on the needs of people who are in a country where there's not a training program for speech therapy and so that we can meet their needs. And so a lot of times that involves a lot of listening because I always tell people I didn't really go out looking for this project. Like I said, I was kind of asked to do it. And then when I went, we were asked to do these, these trainings. And so I feel like that's how it should happen. It shouldn't be like, hey, I have this program, you need to try it. Because that's not my intent at all, because the program gets developed and adapted based on the needs of who we're working with. That's amazing. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I think listening is, it's a skill that's a work in progress, at least for me. <laughs> and I just think about, you know, different cultures. And so, you know, I, 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 I identify as Filipino American and, um, you know, within the um, Asian American culture, a lot of times when we look at the context of healthcare, there's this lack of awareness about services and that issues surrounding stigmas such as denial. And then you throw in the mix of language and, and other cultural barriers. And, you know, a lot of times in my culture, we don't seek the services that we should. And I feel like that listening component, that piece from a professional is key because, you know, that's where you build that trust. And so it seems like based on what I'm hearing from you guys, you guys had to do a lot of trust building, right? And that I think is really a good example for everyone to use. And so I'm curious about what are some of the, the specific uh, ways you guys went about doing that? I know we can say listening, but what does that mean? <laughs> I suppose an advantage or a disadvantage is I kind of went into this with very little, um, I suppose, expectation or idea of what I was going to do. And so it was the ask about, will you provide the speech therapy services? And it's like, yes. And then we kind of had to figure out how it wasn't like I had this clear idea of how to do it. And then it was an ask of like, will you do these trainings? And again, I didn't have a clear idea of how we were going to do it. And so I feel like maybe it's just being open to the idea of that it can look a number of, of different ways. Jocelyn and Amarilis, how did you guys take to that? How did that experience maybe feel like in the moment? And, you know, as you reflect on it, what is, what have you gained from that piece? I feel like the trainings really, I felt like I was kind of with a therapist learning about the trainings, you know, like the trainings, they, we're focused more on like the serving clients with a class palette. And I felt like as an undergrad, 
they go kind of with the courses they briefly bring that up but we don't really get more in depth with it and I felt like the training really went in depth with it and I was able to follow along with it and I felt like the most influential thing was when I was realizing how impactful Austin Smiles is as a nonprofit organization and by providing these services I didn't know that there was such thing until Dr. Resendez was like, oh, by the way, we're going to be doing these trainings with the Salvadoran therapists and we're going to take part in it. And I thought it was an amazing opportunity. And I remember sharing it with other students and they were like, wow, that's something unique. And I wish we could have been in that course. So, yeah, that's something that I really thought was impactful with these trainings. I share with Samantha Jasmine. I want to add that while she was doing, the course was, like, going on, it made me, like, all the time I wanted, like, to jump in and try to explain it in a different way. So I want to say, like, it impacted me in the way, in a way that I realized, like, okay, I'm in the right place because I'm enjoying this and I, like, want to do more and, and I want to find out more of how to help other people that don't have, like, the accessibility to this profession. Like, I remember, like, I was... So, Dr. Resendez, that you talked about, like, the Guatemalan therapists also? Briefly, but you can talk about them a little bit more. Okay, so, um, Dr. Resendez, as part of the course, she also included therapists from Guatemala. I don't know if they're speech pathologists. They're not, right? Because they don't have... Okay, so, she also introduced to us a certified speech-language pathologist that was in Guatemala trying to open a program. So this therapist had, like, meetings with us through Zoom, and they would talk about, like, their experience, the stuff that they had to do because they don't have the same accessibility to equipment and stuff. I remember this little girl that uh, therapist had to do a lot of stuff to try to get her to get a swallow study because there was no way to get her to get a swallow study. So she had to go through loops and holes to get her to get a following stu- the swallow study. So by doing this course, like it impacted me in a way like, okay, I'm, I'm bilingual. How, what can I do to help this community that has such a large need? And I remember even wanting to participate in, in the course. <laughs> and the, what was the name of the patho- um, Dr. Amanda Guerra, is it? It's Dr. Amanda Blackwell. Yeah, okay. So, Blackwell. So, she she was trying to open a program over there in Guatemala. So, I remember even reaching, like, going to Dr. Resendez and asking her, like, hey, is there a way we can join this? <laughs> because, like, Definitely, and it, it it really impacted me in a way that wanted me to to help more, and because like you guys have have mentioned, and Dr. Resendez mentioned, there's a really huge need for cultural diversity in our profession. Yeah, that gets me thinking about something that I've I've had a question uh, this question ever since we talked last time. We can't clone Dr. Resendez as much as we would love to have her everywhere. How do you see, yeah, what do you I do? Know, right? <laughs> how do you see this kind of like, first of all, how did you find out about this opportunity? And then how can you make more grad students aware of these opportunities, right? 
because I get questions all the time, like, what programs should we go to for bilingualism? Is there a good program for bilingual extensions? Or is there a good program? And I don't know what to say all the time. So that was one of part of my question. How do we get more grad students to know about you guys? And is there more of you somewhere? Like, is there other other programs doing similar things? Um, just lots of questions about that for me. There are other programs who do, I think, similar things. Like I said, we use a training that Kate Crowley designed. Dr. Kate Crowley, she designed it with the Leaders Project. And so she does, she uses the trainings, not in El Salvador, but in a lot of other countries. And so I know she does a lot of that. She's kind of the one that we look to for, for guidance as we were doing this project. And I think as far as like how I find these opportunities, I feel like the opportunities kind of find me. And I think part of it is you just have to be open to the idea of doing something that you were not ever really expecting to do. I know like with Austin Smiles, I went actually as a graduate student in the summer of 2001. So you can do the math and figure out how old I am. And I just went as a volunteer and I thought it was a great organization. And then I just kind of really didn't give it much thought. So then when Julie came and said, hey, I'm a volunteer with Austin Smiles, it was like, oh, I've done that before. So I think sometimes you don't know kind of how the experiences that you do are going to kind of impact what you do in the future. And so I'm not, I know that there's a lot of value to know, right? Like if you can't do something, then you need to say no. But also I think there's a lot to be said for taking advantage of those opportunities when they are presented to you. I know for me, like being at a university, I have shared this with other people before. I've not always necessarily been strategic about what I do, but I just kind of follow my heart. And I think that that has worked for me. I find projects that are exciting, that seem new, that are different. I don't think like, oh, well, how many articles am I going to be able to publish out of that? Or um, how is that going to, like before I was tenured, like how is that going to affect my tenure? Because I, I've heard a lot of people who are very strategic talk about how they do it. But then I've also heard a lot of people who say like, you really just need to do what kind of makes you happy. And these sorts of projects where we have this collaboration across professions, right? Because obviously speech language pathologists don't take care of cleft palate all by themselves. They work with surgeons, they work with doctors, they work with nurses. And I think that's one of the great appreciations that you get if you're part of a team. You realize all of the people involved on the team. And so I think you just have to, I think one of the biggest things you can do is be approachable. Because then when people have an idea, they will go to you and they will say, hey, do you want to be part of our team? So I think that's probably one of the biggest things you can do to get involved in projects like this. And then kind of remembering your why of why you got into this profession. I think a lot of people get in the profession to help people. And I think, again, it's like that self-reflection, like why did you want to help people? Like what were you hoping to accomplish? And so I think that also helps people. And I think people can recognize when it's genuine too. And so that makes people want to work with you. And I think one of the cool things about this is that Julie, who's a school-based or who was a school-based SLP, 
came to us at the university and asked if we wanted to do this. And I think that's how it should be. It should be these master clinicians who have been doing this for a long time, working alongside people from the university, because that's how we get some of the best work, I think, because they're out there, they know what's going on day to day. And somebody who works at a university, you're in a very different setting. And so you, it's really easy to lose that day to day kind of what it was what it was like day to day. The word that comes to mind listening to you is meaningful. It sounds like the work is meaningful, the relationships are meaningful, and you find it interesting and meaningful and you move forward with it and go. I love that. I want to add like as a student perspective, well, I'm not a student anymore, but I was like recently, just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Like this course was like bilingual, but just because it say bilingual doesn't mean you can't do it. Like Jocelyn said, she had a language barrier, but she was still able to participate. So it's always possible. Like I think the as long as you have good intentions and you want to learn, and I think you're gonna be fine. A lot of classmates like they didn't want to take the course because they said, "Oh, bilingual," and they were like, "Oh, I'm not bilingual." And then when, like, they were asking me, like, well, what's the course about? And they were like, oh, my God, I wish I would have taken the course with you. So just don't be afraid and take all the opportunities that present to yourself. And I find typically we learn a whole lot when we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations. So that's something that I think everyone is having that inner battle with in their head all the time. But I think... I've personally found success in placing myself in situations where that inner voice in me says, this one's going to be difficult, or I don't know if I can do this, <laughs> but then everything works out. And that's kind of one of the things that I, I think have worked on trying to model for my students is like, you have to step outside your comfort zone. And if I, w I feel like if I'm not willing to do that, then how can I ask them to do it? Again, I think that's another way getting back to your question, Ingrid, about how I kind of get involved in a lot of these projects that are that are very collaborative. It's like, well, that's not something I ever thought I would do. So it sounds like a great learning opportunity. It's all about reframing the way you look at it. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. And to hear you, a professor saying that they're not going to do something that they're not going to ask the students to do something that they wouldn't themselves do. Do you have any idea how much that like just clears so much like grad school trauma? <laughs> You're like doing a therapy session oh. for us now instead of just sharing about you. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, so, this is free therapy for us. <laughs> yeah, it is free therapy for us. It's healing like our little grad student heart. Because you're right, our teachers should not be asking us to do things that they wouldn't themselves do. And then having your students watch you actually train these educators from across the continent, like, it's amazing for you to put yourself out there in front of your whole class and record it. And that's what they ask us to do in grad school over and over again, right? Record your sessions, review the sessions with the supervisor. And, and then for you to be doing it and modeling it, it's just amazing. Well, and I was really so scared, like the first couple of times when I was doing it too. And then it's like, oh, and then I have to answer a question in Spanish. And I, and I don't know, you know, you just kind of have to, you learn by doing it, you just kind of have to go for it. 
to tie this all into accessibility, right? I mean, teaching the next generation of SLPs you know, to look beyond what is in the immediate moment and seeing how they can extend themselves and put themselves in these different and unique situations and opportunities, I think right there is a good example of how we can break down those access barriers. So I want to kind of get some key takeaways from each of you guys, whether it be about your experiences with this course, and then also tying that back into our topic of accessibility in our field in healthcare. Well, I guess I can go first. I think one of the key takeaways is that sometimes it feels like a really daunting task, like how can you reduce disparities? And so I think if you look at it, because I mean, what we're doing with the Salvadoran therapists is really very small compared to the huge issue of disparities in healthcare. But it's one little piece that we can use to model future programs after. And so I think one of the takeaways is kind of go for these projects because you can develop them into something that don't feel like, oh, it's just one little project. It's not going to make a difference. It is going to make a difference for somebody. And so for us, the therapists are going to be able to work with these children who wouldn't otherwise have access. And then I'm really hoping we get feedback from them about the program and then we're able to adapt it. And so being open to the feedback, again, like going outside your comfort zone, I think making people comfortable enough to where they can give you honest feedback about things that they like and don't like about it. I've learned a lot about how to do that by watching one of the other collaborators on this project, Ceci, Ceci Bettis. Like she's very good at getting people to just be comfortable enough to talk to her. And so I think that's one of the key pieces too, just making yourself vulnerable to that and being open to the ideas that other people have. It doesn't have to be like your way because that's what you think it should look like. What about for you, Jocelyn? It's like one thing that you would like someone who's listening to this to know. I feel like as a student, more like an undergrad student, sometimes we feel lost. And I feel like any opportunity that's out there, whether it looks scary, like bilingual speech sound disorders, I was like, I'm not fluent. I don't think I can do this, but... I was able to go ahead and do it and I feel like it really like broadened my awareness of what limitations are out there like access to uh, resources and the training really opened my eyes to see that I'm grateful for where I'm at like the United States has all of these resources and the Salvadoran therapists slowly they're getting their trainings to be able to provide those services to their clients and that can <laughs> I want to say, like, take advantage of every opportunity that presents to yourself, even if it seems small, like, you never know, like, how big it can impact you, because, like, I said, this has impacted me in my career that I just started. I'm already, like, using the experience that I had with this course. Also, you never know how, like, something that you might think is small or you might think, oh, I'm not able to do it. You never know how it can impact 
someone else in the future. Dr. Resenda said, like, she did, she participated in Austin Smiles when she was a graduate student. And look at where she is now. So you never know, like, something that seems small might be really big in the future. Well, and you all are being very kind with everything that you are saying. I think it's also (laughs) important to stay really humble and, like, with cultural humility, like, understanding that um, there's there's still a lot of room for growth. Mm -hmm. I look at what I do and I think like, oh, I could do this better or oh, I could do that better or oh, I need to listen better here. And so, like I said, y'all are being very kind, but there's still like a lot of room for growth over here as well. So I have one last question, if you'll let me. I'm just wondering after all this conversation and just conversations we've had past in the past, um, what do you think is the key? What can grad programs do to put accessibility in the forefront just within their coursework or their clinical training practices. What do you think Dr. Resendez is our path forward? Well, I think we really need to think about who we're serving and who we need to be accessible to. I think that we really need to be open to being very flexible with how we deliver our services to clients and thinking about what clients don't have access and what we, how we can be creative and get them services. And I think also we as speech language pathologists need to be accessible to the clients, not necessarily physically, but I think emotionally also, because that's how we, thinking about those barriers, that's how we can break down some of those barriers too, where they may not come to therapy because they feel that they are not valued or that their culture is not valued. And so we want to be accessible, I think, as speech language pathologists. And then thinking about graduate programs and students, we want to be accessible to students. We want students to feel comfortable coming to us with their concerns, their ideas, because that's how we're gonna really develop these new and innovative programs for the future in order to increase accessibility for a lot of these different groups from CLD backgrounds who don't have access right now. Thank you so much. All right. Jocelyn, from your perspective as a student, what do you think these grad programs should be doing? I think like Dr. Resenda said, like. Being the professors, like being accessible to the students to hear the ideas that they possibly saw, like in clinic or like as they're shadowing. I feel like sometimes as an undergrad, I shadowed, and like if there's barriers out there and what we saw, and bringing it and sharing it with the professors for them to be aware, like, oh, okay, these are some ideas that we can work on. And Amarilis, you have a unique view as a student and an SLPA. What do you think our path forward should be? I definitely agree with starting with students, like more accessibility, like looking for ways to bring more students with cultural diverse background, because those are going to be the ones that are going to be trained and have like the knowledge, the language, or to be able to treat 
the other patients that are not that don't have that accessibility. So I, I think definitely start with the students and then that will bring I think that that's going to be accessibility. Like it's going to come along. I would say also advocate more. Let let you guys like show you guys like show yourself more like like how Dr. Resendez is doing now with this podcast because you guys were not aware of this program. So this is a good start. We already have a podcast that is talking about what is being done. And this podcast may motivate other people to come up with something similar or to participate or to get enrolled. And I think that all this together is going to be more inclusiveness and more cultural diversity. I think it's gonna, all this is going to work out. You guys are definitely role models for our field. <laughs> At least for me, I'm, I'm sitting here <laughs> yeah. listening to all this good information and mm. such meaningful ideas and, and discussion. So I take away a lot of, uh, of good things from this conversation. Mm. And so before we sign off, do you guys have anything else that you guys would like to add? I do. I want to add, like, I think the key for it, it's looking for ways to attract more students with different backgrounds because that way you might have patients like identify and that could help build trust. And so like a, a patient, she's like, oh, she speaks just like me. She looks like me. So it's going to encourage, encourage more patients and clients to come to them. I just want to thank you all for giving us this opportunity to to share what we're doing. You know, you talk about going outside of your comfort zone. This kind of self-promotion is really outside my comfort zone and not something that I'm used to. So I just want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to, to be here and to talk about what we're doing, because that's why we do it, because we want to help increase the accessibility of healthcare. We want people to be aware of what's out there. So thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you guys so much for listening. I wanted to continue our tradition of doing the last word. My last word for this episode is just community. I have finally healed my grad school heart. I didn't know what it was missing. But when I was preparing for this project last year with Kevin and Dr. Resendez and Amarilis and Jocelyn, uh, little by little, I realized that that connection to someone who understood my heritage and my background as first-gen Mexican-American in this field, um, that's what I was missing. And that's why I ran far, far away from grad school as soon as I could even though my professors would lo were lovely and my cohort members were lovely there was still something missing and now I feel like I've found it in this community uh, and I'm so thankful for it Dr. Resendez thank you so much for your time and for sharing everything that you do uh, Dr. Resendez is truly the professor that I wish I had when I was in grad school she is so inspiring 
and just makes me feel like we have a lot of work to do in terms of increasing representation in grad programs in our field. But yeah, just listening to you guys, Amarilis and Jocelyn, uh, you are so lucky to have Dr. Resendez in your corner and after this project and meeting her in Asha, I feel like I've got her in my corner, corner as well. And so I'm thankful for this project, thankful for our conversation. And thank you, Kevin, for introducing me to her. Thank you for listening and supporting the Bold SLP Collective. You can find a closed captioned version of this podcast on our YouTube channel. We will also have show notes on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do all the podcast things. Follow, subscribe, download, and review. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. So connect with us on Instagram at the Bold SLP Collective. Stay bold and humble. See you next time. The views expressed by our guests are their own and do not reflect the views of any associated organizations or affiliations.